Good evening. My name's Kyle Dunham. Kyle, is, uh, did he tell you where he was at? Police station. Police station? He's in San Antonio, Texas. At a conference. So, uh, so I'm filling in tonight. And um, so you can see the topic tonight. It's just we're not doing Proverbs here. We're doing just a kind of a topic tonight. And I was inspired, illuminated, and it was revealed to me that we should use, do this topic uh, based upon this quotation I've got there in A. I was looking at some material <clears throat> that I was uh, <clears throat> kind of discipleship material. And I read this quotation, or this, this, this statement is from the dis- discipleship material. Need a handout? Yes. He's got it. Uh, yeah, he's got it. Uh, here's, what it, here's what it says in the book. This is a discipleship book. <clears throat> it says, when studying a book, it would be, tremendous, it'd be a tremendous help to have the author explain its meaning to you. It would be tremendous help to have the author explain its meaning to you. The Bible is not merely a human book that can be understood and applied through human effort or reason alone. It is inspired, the very Word of God. What a privilege to have the author of Scripture living in you and actively explaining and applying His Word to you. You need the Holy Spirit's help to understand the Bible. So I'm, I'm concentrating on a couple of statements that these fellows make. I know the guys who made this uh, statement. Um, they say at one point here in the first sentence, it says, it's a tremendous help to have the author explain its meaning, the meaning of the Bible to you. And then later on they say, what a privilege to have the author of Scripture living in you, actively explaining Explaining and applying his word, explaining his word. So they're suggesting here, if you read those words, if you if they if they were to mean what they say they mean, that the Holy Spirit is able to explain to us the meaning of Scripture. And I I would say that you know if I was to ask, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but uh, if I was if I was to ask a number of Christians, maybe. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is able to explain the meaning of Scripture to you? Uh, a lot of people would say yes to that. They'd say yes, that's true. I'm going to try to show you that that's not true. The Scripture, the Holy Spirit, does not explain to you the meaning. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about the word meaning here, what meaning means, <laughs> a little bit. But uh, so. If I, if I think if I was to talk to these fellows and, 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 and they would say, well, I, we don't really mean exactly what that sounds like it means, you know. Take, for instance, a text like B. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Remember, this is 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is trying to defend the bodily resurrection. There are people in Corinth who are denying the physical bodily resurrection of believers. And so he is. this is an argument. He says, now, 
If there is no resurrection, no physical body resurrection, what will be though? What will those who are baptized for the dead? What what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are they baptized for them? Now, what in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? <laughs> the Mormons say that that uh, well, in the early history of the Mormons, the Mormons were concerned. Joseph, Joseph Smith was getting a lot of questions in the eighteen forties about what about uh, what about people who never heard the Mormon gospel. What about people who never heard the Mormon good news? What about our our relatives who died long ago? And yes. Scripture says that it's appointed to a man once to die after that the judgment. So being baptized for someone who's already died is pointless. Well, let me explain what they said. Let me, oh. let me explain what they said. So he he said uh, so they he came up with a doctrine because we're we're all we we all even think about. Well, what happens, what about people who died before Christ? You know, people in the Old Testament, how did they get saved? You know, we talk about that. So here was a question of what about people who died before Joseph Smith, you know, put on those glasses and had that revelation and got the Book of Mormon? You know, what happened before then? What, what, what about those people? They didn't, they didn't know anything about this Mormon truth. So he said, well, the answer is that you can be baptized in place of someone else. And that someone uh, in the future will then have another chance to accept the Mormon truth, the Mormon gospel. They'll have a second chance at salvation, and they can accept it or reject it. So the Mormons, you know, they they have these tremendous genealogical records and they go back and they look at everybody in their family and baptize. But even for other people, they baptize for all the presidents of the United States. They have baptized, somebody's been baptized for the, all the presidents and so forth and so on. So it doesn't mean that, friends. <laughs> but the question is, what does it mean? And with the Holy Spirit, if you prayed long enough and hard enough, would the Holy Spirit tell you what it tells you what it means? Because this, this statement says... It's tremendous to have the author explain its meaning to you. What a privilege to have the author of Scripture in you explaining. Uh, we had this text in the class in Second Corinthians a few weeks, a couple weeks ago. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? What does Paul mean when he says, I do not inwardly burn? Okay, we want to talk about that tonight a little bit about what does the Holy Spirit do in uh, in helping us understand the Bible or does he do anything or what does he do what does he does he help us understand the meaning or so forth how does that all work if we memorize it he brings it to our memory what's that he brings it to our memory he brings it to our memory. Helps us remember it. Okay. But that's not exactly explaining the meaning of it. No. You could memorize 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and that wouldn't, uh, you'd memorize it, you could help bring it to your memory, but that wouldn't help you understand it. So in order to do that, let's back up a little bit, and let's see how the doctrines of Revelation, this, this, what we talk about this, explaining the, the, the meaning of the Bible to us, the, word, the role of the Holy Spirit, is often called illumination, the illuminating work of the Spirit. 
But in order to understand that and put it in its proper framework, let's just go back a little bit and talk about two other truths for a moment, revelation, inspiration, and then we'll talk about illumination and see how that fits together. So let's just start at the beginning here and uh, talk about revela- uh, revelation. When I talk about revelation, uh, I'm talking about the giving of the truth. Revelation. We say the Bible is a book of revelation or it, it reveals God. Okay, what do we mean by revelation? Generally, revelation, as I say here, is the communication of divine truth from God to man. We need revelation because we wouldn't know uh, anything about God if God didn't reveal himself to us. There's no way we could know about God if God hadn't revealed himself to us in some way. So how has God revealed himself? God has revealed himself to us in two ways. One of these is called general revelation, and the other is called special revelation. So God has revealed himself to you and I, to mankind, in two distinct ways. And we're trying to get to that second way, the special revelation, because that's what we're dealing with with the Bible. But let's just talk about general revelation for a moment. General revelation is God's communication of himself to all persons at all times and in all places. So it's God God communicates himself to some degree to all persons at all times and all places. If they're capable of rational thinking, it's general and that it's given to mankind in general and it gives a general knowledge of God. So the Bible talks about what's called what we call what uh, theologians call general revelation are a revelation from God that gives us some general knowledge about God. And we'll see what that knowledge is. So all people, even if they don't have a Bible, that's special revelation, they can know things about God. All people who can think rationally can know things about God, and they can know it from what's called general revelation that's available to all of them. Now, you'll see I've got nature, creation, or creation. I've got providence. I've got conscience and so forth. Now, this revelation that comes through these means that we'll talk about gives a general knowledge of God. It tells us something about God's existence, that there is a God who exists, and it tells us something about his character. But let me just say at the outset that this revelation doesn't tell us anything specific about salvation. It doesn't tell us about Jesus Christ. It doesn't tell us about his death on the cross. It doesn't tell us about the character of sin. It doesn't tell us about the love of God. It doesn't tell us about the need of repentance and faith. So no one can be saved through what I'm going to talk about here that's called general revelation. There's no, there's no salvation through this. So let's talk about the ways that God has revealed himself and is revealing himself to all people. He he uses nature or creation. And the two most famous Bible texts on that are Psalm 19 and Romans 1. Remember Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. So the psalmist is saying, when you look out at the heavens, people can see and should see that there is a God. Now, we'll see in Romans 1 that there's a problem, but they should see and understand when they see creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. 
They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So actually creation is not speaking audibly to us, but it's speaking to us. We look at creation. Yet their voice goes out unto all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So the psalmist is saying, when people look at creation, when human beings look at creation, they see, they realize there must be a God who created this. And they see he must be a wonderful, glorious God to create this universe and all of the stars and constellations and the galaxies and all that, you know. It's obvious that that just didn't happen. Romans 1.18, Paul picks up on that. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, ungod all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since... What, since what might be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So creation reveals that there is a God. He's a glorious God. He's powerful. And Paul says that he's a judge here. Now, what Paul tells us about this is in the first part of 18, he says, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. The problem with people are is that we are born sinful, and therefore immediately when this revelation comes to us, we begin to suppress it. We begin to deny it. We say, no, that's, that, there's no God. There's no creator. We suppress it. We deny it. And... Uh, we become practical atheists, or unbelievers become practically atheistic. You know, they, of course, we have convenient ways of, of explain, trying to explain away God by saying there's there's a evolution and so forth, and all this just evolved from the Big Bang and so forth. So, uh, my point here is to say that all people have a knowledge of God, but if you walk out on the street, you'll meet people who'll say there are there is no God. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe in God. And the reason they don't is because they have suppressed it. And they suppress it because if you admit there's a God, it means I'm not, I'm, maybe you know, I'm responsible. If there's a God, then he, is, he has rules, he has laws, and, and I'm, I'm subject to those. And so that makes me a responsible person. I don't want to be responsible to anybody but myself. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the master of my soul. And so... I don't want any, any responsibility. So people suppress that truth. So uh, the Bible says there are various ways that revelation about God, this is general, that there's a powerful God who exists in the universe, comes to all people and they try to suppress it through providence. What is providence? Providence is that continuous agency of God by which he makes... All the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which he created it. So God has a plan. God has a plan for the universe and for everything that happens. You and me and every speck of dust in the universe. God, there, isn't, there is no free atom roaming around. There's no free electrons. God's got it all planned. And uh, he is bringing that to pass. That's his plan through providence. He is in control. And so, by observing that, people realize there's a God. So Matthew 5.45, 
He causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So as you look and see how the world operates, the regular cycles of the world, the way things run and work, one should realize that there is a God, a benevolent God who sends the rain, who sends the sun to shine. Acts 14, Paul says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans, like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from your these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown you kindness. Here's his testimony. Here's his revelation to you. It's general. He has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdoms to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. So this providence of God, through God's providence, it reveals, we see that God is a benevolent God. He uh, provides food for people. He raises up kings. He removes rulers, raises up others. Another way that God has revealed himself generally is through our own conscience. So we know, all people know there is a God. Now they suppress it. They deny it, remember, <laughs> because of depravity, because we're sinners. People deny it. But they all people know there's a God because they have this conscience, Paul says. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, the Mosaic law, the Gentiles who don't have God's law do by nature the things required by the law. So people in the world... Most people don't go around murdering other people. You know, even Paul says, even people who didn't have a law that says, you know, do not murder, they didn't go around murdering everybody. So people naturally, he says, do the things in the law, even though they don't have a law. They are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. So Paul says that God has placed his moral law within every human being. Every human being has within them God's moral law. And that's how the conscience operates. That's why people excuse themselves. That's why they feel guilty. In other words... Why should a person feel guilty when he murders someone else? Why would he feel guilty? Because it's against God's law. It's wrong. Well, how do they know it's wrong? How would they know it's wrong? Because God has put it in their hearts. God has put that moral law in their hearts. So the fact that people have to make excuses for their conduct, even though people who say there is no God, and you can travel around, I'm sure we can go to Wayne State or University of Michigan and find plenty of professors who will say there is absolutely is no God. There is no God who exists. There is no God at all. They would absolutely uh, swear to that. There is no God. Nevertheless, you know, they would try to excuse their conduct sometimes, you know. Maybe they uh, 
said something nasty to their kids. They said something nasty to their wife. Or they, they might try to say, uh, why would they say I'm sorry? What? <laughs> Who's making the rules? Where do these rules come from, right? I mean, if there's no God, then we're just all gods ourselves, and we can do what we want. There's no higher power. There's no higher rules. But that's just not true, because we all feel guilt. Our conscience pricks us because we have this moral law. So that moral law, that knowledge of right and wrong, is a revelation of God. Now, that revelation won't help us find anything about the Bible. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's truth, that there is a God, that we are responsible for that God, but it doesn't help us interpret the Bible. There's another kind of revelation called special revelation. General, general to all people, special. God's particular communication and manifestation of himself to particular persons at particular times. So there's various methods of special revelation where God just communicates of himself to particular persons at particular times. There are physical miracles. I probably should have put the word physical miracles here. A physical miracle is a communication. It tells us something about God. Exodus 6.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let you go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So what God did to Pharaoh was a revelation of who God was, of his power and so forth. So these physical miracles are revelations of God. Sometimes God just speaks directly to people, direct speech, like the Lord said to Abraham, from your country, go from your country, from your people. That's a miracle too. Uh, there's miracles, uh, physical miracles, there's direct speech. Dreams are miraculous too. Remember, after this is Joseph. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph. So this was communication from God. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The incarnation of Christ. Christ came in physical form and we learned things from him. That was a revelation. But we're primarily concerned about this one, Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So God has two types of revelation. He has general revelation, which is given to all people at all times. People suppress that, and they reject that. And that's why Paul says they're without excuse. And then there is this special revelation. God, especially in the past, at certain periods, has communicated directly to people, miraculously to people. That's very rare. I mean, it happens at certain times in history. It happened during the time of Moses, the miracles of Moses and so forth, the times of Elijah and Elisha, you know, but mostly it's pretty rare than the time of Jesus. We didn't really see any miracles for a long time until we get to the time of Jesus. And that Jesus is doing all these miracles and the apostles are doing all these miracles. So these miracles are pretty rare uh, in periods of history. And uh, these miracles, direct speech, dreams, 
These are forms of communication where God reveals truth. But the one that's lasting is this scripture. Now, now there we talk about inspiration. It's still special revelation. It's still revelation from God. But mostly it's not direct. It's mostly indirect. We'll get to that in a second. So how do we define inspiration? I think we're familiar with this kind of definition. God's superintendence of the writers so that they wrote the word of God. This is kind of a brief. We used to use the word superintendence because God guided, he superintended. So they wrote the word of God. We have scripture like 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We call it the doctrine of inspiration because the older translations uh, actually translated that Greek word theopneustos given by inspiration. The King James says all scripture is given by inspiration. And that's that word theopneustos there that I've got, the Greek theopneustos. The King James translates that one word given by inspiration. So we have the doctrine of inspiration, but probably a better way to translate that word, theopneustos, is God-breathed, because it's made up of the word theos, God, and the word nuo, to breathe, breathe out. We got the word inspiration because the Bible was translated, one of the earliest translations was into Latin. Remember the Roman world mostly spoke Latin. Now, in the time of the Apostle Paul, Greek was actually more dominant in the first century. More people spoke Greek in the city of Rome, even, than they spoke Latin, though Latin is the official language. There were actually more Greek speakers, and all Romans tended to speak uh, Greek. Any educated Roman spoke Greek because they read Greek literature and so forth. So Greek was spoken in Rome, but Latin was the official language. Eventually, Greek died out. So by the year 250, 300, Greek is gone. Greek is totally gone except in Greece. (laughs) And Latin predominates the next 1,200 years throughout Western Europe and so forth. So when the Bible was translated into Latin, this word theopneustos was translated in Latin by the word inspiro. Inspiro means to breathe in. To breathe in. Now that was a big mistake, unfortunately. They should have translated by the word expiro, expiro, expiration, to breathe out. Because the Greek word means to breathe out. All scripture is breathed out by God. But that didn't happen. <laughs> the translators translated it inspiro, and from inspiro we get the word inspiration. Nothing wrong with that. We understand that inspiration is a theological term, and we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. But that's how we got the term inspiration. But it's technically all scripture is God breathed. So that's a form of revelation, a form of special revelation. Scripture reveals truth from God. It's breathed out. There's other texts like 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Peter says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place where the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I'm just including this. I want to get to verse 21, but 
I just mentioned this because when we get to verse 21, it's a little confusing when it says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. When we see that, for prophecy never had its origin, I tend to think, when he's talking about prophecies, you know, prophets, they're giving prophecies. We're thinking about something oral. That's what I think about when I hear, if I just read that verse, I would think we're talking in verse 21 about something oral for prophecy um, never had its origin. But he's not talking about something oral. He's talking about something written here. And we know that from verse 19. We also have the prophetic message. Now, every time that phrase is used in Scripture, it's used of Scripture. (laughs) Every time it's used in the Bible, it means Scripture. It means the holy writings. So Peter's not talking about prophets speaking orally here. He's talking about actual Scripture. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, this is a little more complex to understand. He's using kind of an image here that he's drawing from Numbers 24, 17. In Numbers 24, 17, the Messiah is called the morning star there in this, in this prophecy about the Messiah. He's called the morning star. And Peter is saying, we have this prophetic message that's very complete, very reliable, until, until when? Until, like a light shining, the day dawns and the morning star shines and rises in your hearts. He's talking about our inner transformation, our glorification here. This is like 2 Corinthians 3.18. So he's kind of using this to say, we have this prophetic message until the time when The morning star rises in your hearts when your transformation is complete. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy, that is this prophetic message, had its origin in the human will. Never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's another indication that this revelation is from God because these prophets who wrote the prophetic message, and it may sound strange to think about prophets writing the prophetic message, that when we hear that, we tend to think about, okay, what prophets wrote the prophetic message? Isaiah, Jeremiah. Well, in, in Jewish thinking, all writers of the Old Testament were prophets. Moses was a prophet. David's a prophet. David's called a prophet, actually, in Acts. So... In, in Jewish thinking, anybody who writes scripture has the prophetic gift. He's a prophet. And so they're saying, uh, Peter is saying here that um, these prophets, when they spoke and gave us the prophetic message, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That kind of goes along with 2 Timothy 3.16. That word carry is the Greek word pharaoh. We get our word fairy from it. Fairies carry along the water, you know. So this is, uh, they just carry the the Spirit, carried them along. That's why we use that word superintended. The Spirit superintended the writers. So Paul was writing his epistle to the Philippians that we've been studying. But when he was writing that to real people in Philippi, a church he really knew, God was superintending that. The Spirit was superintending that, carrying him along. So he wrote the Word of God. There's also a 1 Corinthians 2.13 we could just mention. 
This is what we speak, Paul says to the Corinthians, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. So here, clearly Paul says, I'm being guided in what I'm writing to you by the Holy Spirit, Spirit-taught words. Now, just to explain that, this theory of inspiration does not mean it was dictated. It's a revelation from God, but Paul was writing to the Philippians, real people. He was writing what he knew, He was, but God was superintending. He didn't dictate it to him. It's a divine human book. We see the personality of the writers coming through. Coming through. Theologians call this confluence. We have a confluence of the human and the divine. Paul's writing, but God is superintending. So we still see Paul's personality comes through. Inspiration and revelation. Okay, how does how do we how does this relate to revelation? In a general sense, the Bible is God's revelation to man. Okay, that's true. It's special revelation. God has revealed through the writers what he wanted us to know. It's special revelation. I just make a couple of side comments here. Not all special revelations in the Bible. We know that. That is, God has revealed things to people that that, are, that is not in the Bible. God has communicated and talked to people. I mean, he's talked to me, and I'm I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. I saw, uh, you see on Facebook, I saw, uh, you know, I don't know the truth is, but there was this thing about this Nigerian prophet, a health and wealth guy prophet, you know, he had predicted Hillary Clinton would win the election, though, and he had to take down his post real quick, you know, when, when she <laughs> had to take his pro- he had made a prophecy, he had, you know, God had told him, you know, what was going to happen. A lot of people made that prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm just saying here that not all special revelation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I knew a man 14 years ago who was caught up in the third heaven. And I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. I'm not really sure. But I saw things there that I cannot tell you. It's not I can't. God won't allow me to tell you. So God, but Paul had special revelation that he's not written down in the Bible. And then I say not everything in the Bible is the product of direct revelation. In fact, most everything is not the product of direct revelation. That is, when Paul was writing to the Philippians, God didn't have to really tell him what to write there. God superintended and controlled, but God didn't dictate to him. So when Paul is writing, he's writing what he knows, what he understands. Um, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 9, he tells Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. God didn't have to tell Paul, Demas has deserted you. Paul knows Demas has deserted him. He's just telling Timothy, Demas has deserted me. So there was no revela- direct revelation in that sense. It's all superintending by God. As far as um, inspiration, copies, and translations, um, just... Here we know that inspiration is ultimately confined to the original writings themselves, uh, what are called the autographs that Paul wrote, that Moses wrote, and so forth, not to translations necessarily. Translations 
are not inspired in that sense, technical sense. Let's talk about this third category, illumination, understanding the truth. I have used the word understanding here. And I've got a definition for that. The Bill Combs definition. The work of the Holy Spirit that enables the believer to understand the significance of what the Bible says and accept it as true. There's two parts to this. Understanding the significance of what the Bible says. And second part, accept it as true. <clears throat> There's a key, the key text for us is 1 Corinthians 2.14 and we'll look at verse 15 too. Here's the key text on this idea of illumination. What does the Spirit do for us in relation to understanding Scripture? Can unsaved people understand the Bible? <clears throat> Paul says the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them. I just asked the question, can the unsaved person understand the Bible? Paul says pretty clearly there, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. So, even though Paul says there, the person without the Spirit cannot understand them, I'm saying, okay, don't get upset with me now. I'm saying the unsaved person can understand the Bible in a certain sense. They can understand what we might call the meaning, though they don't understand the significance of the Bible. Now, as I say, in light of this verse, it looks like unsaved people can't understand what the Bible is actually saying. Uh, the problem with, with using the word understanding, I, I used it, I said, the work of the Holy Spirit that enables the Bible to understand the significance. And that, that uh, definition I started off with, where it says, uh, the Bible is not merely a human book, that can be understood and applied. Uh, the author explains the meaning to you. What I'm arguing is that there's a difference between what I'm going to call meaning and significance, and the work of the Holy Spirit is in the realm of significance. Now let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 for a second, and we'll come, come back to that. Um, if we look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They cannot understand them. Let's take a text like Matthew 2.1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. I'm just taking a statement from Scripture. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Think about that. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, I would argue that an unsaved person can understand that perfectly fine. They can understand. Now, when Je there's somebody named Jesus. They may not know who Jesus was, but there's some person named Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem, Judea, it's a geographical 
place in the days of Herod the king. In the days, I, I, I would say that an unsaved person can understand what that means. It's English, perfectly good English. The unsaved person can, can, can figure that out. It's not a problem. So what I'm saying is the unsaved person can understand the meaning of that text. The meaning of that text. Now, what do we mean by meaning? I've got a definition there. What an author intends by his choice of, of a particular words and a particular grammatical form and a particular context can be discovered only by historical grammatical theological interpretation. We'll come back to that. So I'm saying the meaning, the basic grammatical meaning can be understood by the unsaved person if they understand English or Greek or Hebrew or whatever it is. They can understand that. The Bible's not written in some secret language, secret code, or something like that. They can understand the meaning. Well, what does Paul mean here? Well, Paul says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So there's the problem. It's not that they don't understand them. They can't accept them. This word means to welcome, to gladly receive. They don't do that but considers them foolishness, and they cannot understand. This is that Greek word, gnosko, you've heard pastor talk about. That means experience them. They can't understand them in the sense of experience them for themselves. So that's why I've got this word significant. Significance involves the application of the meaning of Scripture to an individual. So I, Paul is saying here, the person without the Spirit, the unsaved person, they don't welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God. They can read Matthew 2.1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. They can understand that, understand the grammatical meaning of that. They can read John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son... That whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal everlasting life. They can, that's pretty understandable English. But what they don't do is accept it. They don't accept it. They don't understand it in the sense of experience it. That's what Paul is saying the problem with the unsaved person is. The unsaved person is a person who suppresses the truth of revelation. And so, yeah, they can read the Bible. They can understand the grammatical meaning of it. But Paul says they don't see the significance of it. They don't really understand it in an experiential sense, and they don't welcome it. And I said illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit that enables the believer to understand the significance of what the Bible says and accept it as true. So... A person who comes to Christ, one of the things that happens is, in regeneration and being born again is, they immediately have an acceptance of Scripture. You don't have to argue with them anymore about the Bible and anything like that. They want to know what the Bible says. You know, they're eager to, to know the Bible. They want, they, want to, they want to find out what the Bible says. God creates in them an acceptance of revelation. They, they accept it as coming from God. You don't have to debate that or prove that. 
That's what unbelievers want to do all the time. They want to say, I don't believe that Bible. I don't think it's the Word of God. When a person is regenerate, God solves that problem immediately. They immediately accept the truth. What the Holy Spirit does as we read Scripture, as we study Scripture, we understand what it means. The Holy Spirit helps us to experience that, to accept that in the sense of see how it applies to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins. You know, any unsaved person can read that. Christ, somebody named Christ, died for our sins. But it doesn't mean a hill of beans. <laughs> you know, okay, what does that mean? But to us, it means a lot. And the reason it means a lot is we see the significance of that. He died for me. He took my place. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in to bring that significance to us. So, I said they're under the meaning. The meaning can only be discovered by historical, grammatical, theological interpretation. Sometimes uh, it's called historical, grammatical some, we kind of put the word historical, grammatical, theological. So if we're going to understand the meaning of the Bible, we're going to have to study. <laughs> In other words, there's no revelation going on now. Here's the revelation from God, but it's finished. It's complete. It's not going on anymore. Nothing more is being revealed. It would be nice <laughs> If, you know, revelation was going on, because that's what it would take for the Holy Spirit to communicate to us the meaning. You see, if what those authors said was true, it would be great <laughs> to have the author explain his meaning to you. Because I waste a lot of time, my friends, learning Greek and Hebrew, reading all these commentaries, reading all these books, taking all these classes... If I could just have the Holy Spirit explain this to me, you know, what's the That would be simple, wouldn't it? There'd be no need for study, no need for books, no need for hearing Pastor Ken explain the, the, the Scripture to us. See. So we can only determine the meaning by what's called grammatical, historical, theological interpretation. We have to study the Bible. We study the Bible by using helps and aids, books, commentaries, and teachers in the church. We hear Pastor Ken speaking on Philippians. Why do we, we're hearing that because he's explained to us, he's explained the meaning to us. But he can't do a thing about the significance. His job is to explain the meaning of the text. The Holy Spirit's job is to apply that to us, the significance. Now, he'll make applications, but it comes down to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So the point is, for this to work, if what these authors said was true, and they don't really mean it, I know, but they're saying it as though it sounds like to have the author explain its meaning to you, I'm saying that's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't explain the meaning. So if we come to a text like 1 Corinthians 15, 29, you can pray all day and all night, my friends. <laughs> but, you know... You're not going to find the meaning out from that. Because in order for you to get the meaning by praying in the Holy Spirit, you'd have, that would be an act of revelation, you see. 
There's no revelation going on today. Revelation is complete. It's finished. Here's the final revelation right here. That's it. It's right there. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. So if, if God was going to communicate the meaning of that to me directly, that would take an act of revelation. Revelation would still be going on, and it's not going on. Revelation is finished. It's complete. Not that everybody believes that. The Quakers don't believe that. If you go to a Quaker meeting, you just go there and sit down, sit in your chair, sit across from each other, and wait for God to speak to you. And when God speaks to you, then you get up and say what God told you. So they believe in continuing revelation. But we don't believe in continuing revelation. We believe that revelation is complete, finished in Scripture here. So God's told us all he's going to tell us for right now. So it's up to us to try to understand what he said. So we've got to use Bible study methods, historical, grammatical, theological. So if we look at a text like B here, you thought I was going to tell you what it said, didn't you? Well, let's take a stab at that. So one thing we could look at would be historically, you know, what was going on in the first century. Did did anybody, did anybody before the time of the Bible baptize one person in place of another person? No. Nobody baptized anybody in place of another person. So if the Corinthians are baptizing somebody in place, if they're doing what the Mormons were doing, they're the first ones to do it. Nobody in the early church did it. So nobody in the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, nobody baptized somebody for the dead. So, you know, historically, there's no evidence of any baptizing somebody in place of somebody else and that by saving them or giving them a second chance like the Mormons say, that kind of thing. So historically, it just doesn't work. We can look at it kind of grammatically here, and that's what people do. Now, admittedly, this is a very difficult text. This is one where it's, 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 not, it's not possible to be, to be certain about everything the Bible says. You know, God has told us everything we need for our faith and practice, everything we need for our sanctification, everything we need to grow in Christ, to conduct a church. But not every specific text is perfectly clear. I think what's going on here is when when Paul says those who are baptized for the dead, it's it's not it's not I know this is not completely obvious. But he's using the same kind of language as in, first, in Romans chapter 6. Where we have the idea of being baptized. We're buried, buried with Christ, raised. Uh, the idea here is we are those whose bodies will die. We are dying and will die. So we are the ones who are being baptized for the dead. When Bill Combs was baptized... He was baptized for a person who was spiritually dead and ultimately will physically die. Uh, And that baptism, that burial with Christ, raised to walk, pictured the resurrection to follow. So if there's no resurrection, why do we bother baptizing people, seems to be Paul's argument. That's, That's what I would suggest here. 
if we look at like C, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? Well, we have to use historical, grammatical. We could use grammatical. We could look up the word burn and the word burn in Greek can have one of two ideas. And it, it could either mean burn with sympathy or burn with in, indignation. Burn with sympathy or burn with indignation. So Paul could mean, who is led into sin, and I don't burn with sympathy. That is, I'm upset. It's a terrible thing. Here is this brother or sister who's led into sin, and 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 I'm sympathetic. I, I, I just hate this. It's awful. Or... I'm upset. <laughs> I'm indignant. You know, when people are led into sin, they, they don't they don't trust Christ. They follow sin. It could mean something like that. There's a couple of possibilities grammatically there. This is another difficult one. I chose these difficult ones here because if the Holy Spirit really if the Holy Spirit really communicated the meaning, we wouldn't have any difference of opinion here. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying if, if the Holy Spirit was communicating the meaning, then we would all know the meaning, or we could know all the meaning. But the truth is, we can't be positive about this because the Holy Spirit is not, his, his work is not in the area of meaning, what the grammatical meaning is. That's not his work. If it was, then we wouldn't have debates about that kind of thing. The reason we have debates about this is because there is no communication of the meaning. That would be an act of revelation. And that's not going on now. What is going on by the Holy Spirit is this, what I call in the realm of significance. First, acceptance is true. That comes initially with regeneration. We accept the Bible as true. And then the Spirit works in our hearts to help us see the significance of that. And that's an ongoing work. And that's why we say sometimes... Now, there's a couple of things people say. They say, you know, before I was saved, I never understood the Bible. So that sounds like the Holy Spirit does give us the meaning. But what's really true is when they say, before I was saved, I didn't understand the Bible. It means that I didn't accept it. I didn't see the correlation. I didn't welcome it. Uh, There was no work of the Spirit to apply it to me. It was just like a dead book. That's what they sort of mean. It doesn't mean that they couldn't understand the grammar and and the words and look up the words in the dictionary and that kind of thing. So uh, that's not what's going on with uh, illumination. So did I answer all your questions there? Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Isn't it more like before our heart is is regenerated, isn't it more like we have no desire to understand it? It's not that we couldn't if we put in the effort. Right. That's true. Yeah, we don't have we don't have any real desire for the Bible particularly. But there are people who do. I mean there are people who have degrees from Harvard and Yale, <coughs> unsaved people who have degrees in the Old Testament and New Testament and theology who are unsaved. Uh, the seminary where I taught, we have lots of books by unsaved people, actually. We think that they're unsaved, who knows, but they deny, they deny the doctrine of inspiration. 
They deny the deity of Christ. That sounds like unsafe, even though they write books about the Bible. So unsafe people can study the grammar, the history, the culture, and write books about it. They do it all the time. <laughs> it's very, very common. Uh, and yet they're not really regenerated. So they, they sometimes they can have a, uh, an intellectual interest, you know, a uh, scholarly it's interest. Not the same as no, no, no. It's not. It's not understanding the significance of it. They don't correlate it. They look for errors, things that don't make sense. They try to point those out. All right. Yes, ma'am. Well, this is a little bit off, um, but it's when you're talking about revelation and there's the general revelation. How do the you probably hear this question all the time? How do the the guy in Africa or the Muslim or somebody? How do they get the word of God? How does God save them? If not, if they don't respond to general revelation. Well, nobody responds positively to general revelation. Nobody responds positively. Everybody suppresses it. The only answer for the Muslim, the person who has never heard the gospel, is to hear the gospel. That's why we want to take the gospel to all the places of the world, because the only answer is the gospel itself. So they, they must hear, hear it. Right. They don't hear it. They're out of they, luck. They're out of luck. Because I work with some of the Muslims. Um, yeah. And, and I have heard that sometimes they get dreams and visions. Yes. Yes. And well, I hear there's all kinds of stories that yeah. about things like that. Yes. Well, God also feels like you were talking about conscience. He gives us the conscience. I, I mean, when they talk about their religion and and all they believe about stuff, their conscience tells them, is that right or wrong? They have a conscience sure. to know that's... Do you, like, I talked to this lady that was, I forget what religion she was, and I said, do you really... We had a long conversation when we came from... And I said, do you really believe that? And she goes, it's nice meeting you, Tamara. But you know, um, but she has to take that away from her, because they really don't believe that with their whole heart. You can't, not with it. God put any conscience in your mind of what's right and wrong. Yeah. Well, you can, you know, your conscience is affected. The conscience is the prick that says this is right or wrong, and the conscience can be educated wrongly or correctly. So sometimes we can think something is wrong that's not necessarily wrong, uh, and sometimes we can think something's right that's not necessarily right. So it has to be educated by Scripture. But we do have that moral law written, but the problem is... Depravity perverts that and distorts that. That's that's part of the problem. All right. Yes. Do you ever feel like, <clears throat> because of total depravity, that trying to argue intellectually the Bible to unbelievers is like trying to nail jelly to the wall? It is. It is. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. It's like that. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? All right. Yes. Well, I might just respond to that. Yes. Is that, is that we have to then depend on the truth that God's word does not return. Sure, absolutely. So we give it out even yeah. if it doesn't seem to make exactly. sense to the person. And pray for the person. See, therefore yeah. it takes. Give them the truth, yeah. then pray that God will use that truth to regenerate and change their heart. That's what we need to do. Yeah, that's good. Thank you.